WBEZ is supported by Barnes & Thornburg, a law firm committed to a value-oriented approach to serving clients and solving their complex business problems for all legal needs in Chicago, across the nation, and around the world. On the web at btlaw.com. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The French Prime Minister thinks the ban on burkinis encourages social unity. We'll consider the swimwear controversy. A new animated film brings some samurai swagger. Film contributor Milos Stalik talks with the director of Kubo and the Two Strings. And on Weekend Passport, India Fest, and how to get all of Greek mythology into 99 minutes or less. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. They're handing out tickets in Cannes over bathing suits. The resort town in the south of France has handed out four fines. Six women have left the beach after a warning. All were wearing the banned burkini. Five French towns have banned the burkini. Several are in the process of doing so. The forbidden swimwear looks a lot like the outfits that some Muslim women wore at the Olympics. We're going to talk about the situation now with Dr. Farid Hafez. He is a political science researcher at the University of Salzburg in Austria, and he's co-editor of the European Islamophobia Report. Thanks a lot for joining us, Farid. Hi, thank you for having me. I wonder if we could zoom out for a second uh, and talk more generally about what effect um, Muslim populations are having on places like France and Germany. Uh, you know, I noticed that the German interior minister is interested in a partial burqa ban these days. And both of these countries have uh, six, seven percent Muslim populations. Um, it, what, what's happening here? Is, are, are, is there a reaction to uh, both these countries changing that is um, that's getting interpreted in these in these laws and bans? Well, first of all, I think it really doesn't have so much to do with the question of numbers of people, but rather it is a kind of a battle over identity. So I think what is really behind the whole ban debate is more more of a statement um, of what it means to be French, to be German, to be Dutch in these days. So it is very much about how Europe's political elite sees the space also of Muslim women. Let, let, let's, let me just give an example. Let's say when, when Muslim women were with a headscarf were cleaning windows or cleaning the floor, nobody cared, right? But in these days when Muslim women are teaching at school or sitting in a court as a lawyer or just go to the beach where everybody else goes, so this is where the identity issue uh, comes. So it's also about a power struggle in some some way. Uh, what effect do terrorist incidents like the one in Nice have on have it 
because it seems like this flares up the bans. This uh, kind of uh, – and political um, environments. We certainly have an election coming up in France that seems to be having an effect. Uh, these these things enter into the identity uh, equation too. I think in, in France, really, there is a special issue, again, with the question of secularity. So this makes France special in many ways and different to other European countries. Um, but all in all, I would say the main issue really is um, – Winning the votes against the, uh, against a rising far right. So in France, as much as in other many other European countries, you have a growing number of support of uh, French uh, of far right political parties, and it is very much about uh, gaining votes, mobilizing the electorate, not to lose again against uh, these rising stars of the far right, like Marine Le Pen in France, uh, or uh, let's say Norbert Hofer in Austria. Yeah, it's been interesting to see the uh, political rhetoric in France. Almost everyone from every specter of the political spectrum is uh, against these burkinis. They all seem to be speaking out, whether they're socialists or Marie Le Pen. They're they're all against burkinis. Yeah, and I think they are against burkinis also because in in, in France you have the secularity issue, which... uh, basically says that the only progressive identity French people can have is a very narrow understanding of what French to be French means. And this is very much also against any kind of religious uh, symbol or, uh, or a practice in the public sphere. And I think a second aspect, which people very often ignore, is the dimension of the colonial heritage. I mean, for colonial France, Whaling was seen as a symbol of Muslims' backwardness in contrast to French women's progressiveness and cultural superiority. So these views also legitimized colonialism and especially the attempt at that time to free the Muslim whaled women from their own brown black men. So um, the answer now of Muslim women is we don't need no white savior uh, from you, um, but still the, the main issue here is very much about um, the whale being a kind of a hypercharged symbol that is still actual and in the post-colonial uh, state of France still there can be mobilized around it. It's interesting. There's um, still something of a uh, paternalistic colonial uh, attitude towards uh, what's happening today. I, I think about um, people who say, well, we're going to save you from the Wahhabist influence that is corrupting your religion, and you have to do this too if you want to entry into our universe. Uh, how, 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 do the, how do those kind of arguments sound to you? Well, I think, I mean, basically saying, saying I, I would really say it's very much about this issue of national identity. I mean, a very personal encounter for myself when I entered the United States the first time in my life. I remember during my tour, I met a U.S. woman who was wearing a head, uh, a face whale, and she was giving me a tour in a, uh, in a private school. So this was my, as for me as a European, this was my very first encounter with a whaled, face-whaled Muslim woman. And I asked myself, why did it never happen in Europe that I could actually exchange my views with a woman who has a whale in her face? So, 
And I think the answer is because in Europe, these women are not given any space. They are just excluded from the public space. They are not given any chances also to work. So there is no possibility for them to speak out for themselves. So that's why, in that sense, the white men start speaking about these women and, and talking about Wahhabi influence. But as a matter of fact, these women are completely excluded from social life, not because of their Muslim husbands, but rather because of the political system. I'm talking with Dr. Farid Hafez. He's a political science researcher at the University of Salzburg in Austria, and he's co-editor of the European Islamophobia Report. Uh, it's interesting because uh, everyone's watching the Olympics and seeing um, some Muslim women compete in uh, in outfits that are very similar to the burkini. Uh, the, there was an Iranian woman who won a bronze medal in Taekwondo last night and uh, was in a very similar uh, outfit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's also the reason why Trump did not speak a lot about the Olympics, right? Because, I mean, many of the Muslim people were just celebrating this, seeing it as a, a symbol also of... Uh, how they deal with uh, female Muslim issues. I mean, whether they wear a headscarf, whether they do not wear a headscarf, nobody cares because it's just a normal thing for them. But we see when, when this kind of diversity comes out there and is celebrated, the far right uh, is really silent about it. Not only Donald Trump, but many other European far right leaders. And um, it, this is seen in Iran as a, as a very progressive thing. This woman is winning a, a medal. She's going to come back. They're going to be able to get more funding for more women's sports, and they're going to build on that. Absolutely. And I, th I think a ban would also uh, lead to possibly the very, the very thing that nobody really wants, which is more exclusion from society and everything else than empowerment of these women. You know, it's um, interesting that France is um, had a situation in their prisons where there's a phenomenal uh, percentage of Muslim prisoners in their in their prisons, and they don't keep exact totals of who is and isn't a Muslim in their prisons. But they've got programs to end social exclusion in their prisons that seem pretty progressive, or at least have attempted to be progressive. Um, um, but uh, I, I don't know. They, there seem to be so many countervailing pressures to increase social exclusion. Uh, they seem to do both at the same time. Well, um, I mean, I, I can judge the prison uh, system because I'm absolutely no expert on that. Um, and I would also not say because there is Islamophobia in one country, I mean, everything is bad. Sure not, surely not. But I, I think the... Why it is so difficult to come to terms with the whole issue of otherness and uh, religious otherness in Europe is because Europe, also in contrast to the United States of America, still largely sees religion as something backward. I mean, while you have in, in the United States and in a place like Chicago, we know from the black churches and the civil rights movement, religion is also something which can be very much progressive, right? This experience is not there in Europe. In Europe, it's very much about... Uh, the Catholic Church was just suppressing the people, it was suppressing knowledge. So religion still is something we have to fight. That's uh, a quite, quite uh, um, um, widespread uh, attitude with many, many people. 
Are you worried about how the refugee crisis has affected uh, people's attitudes here and in, in, throughout Europe? Uh, it absolutely it... had, and we can see that very much with Eastern European countries. In Eastern European countries, we do have a percentage of Muslim people living there which is beyond under uh, 0.1%. Still, the Islamophobia issue has risen enormously. Not only, interestingly enough, not only with the far-right fringe political parties, but also also with the governing parties. Why? Because by that, by tracing back to Islamophobia, they were able to legitimize the very repressive uh, uh, um, uh, laws regarding the influx of uh, refugees coming to their countries, arguing why they do not want to have refugees in their own countries. Um, the the percentage there that you cited, uh, one-tenth of one percent. So in, in some Eastern European countries, the Muslim population is one-tenth of one percent. Yes, absolutely. Um, and Russia has a, has a large Muslim population. They have a Muslim population around 10 percent. Um, yes. But it doesn't seem, doesn't seem to have ever filtered over to Eastern Europe, or the Eastern Europe seems to be... Uh, this place that uh, just doesn't have a lot of Muslims in it between between two places that do. Well, I would I would especially speak about like countries like Lithuania, countries like um, like uh, I mean Serbia. You still uh, or Croatia. You still have kind of a native population of Muslim people, but uh, in in many countries like Romania, for instance, you do not have a, any big number of Muslim people there. But still, we saw. The refugee, the so-called refugee crisis, and how it was debated in media, very much showed us that the fear uh, could be produced by the politicians because there is no uh, no a real and uh, uh, experience on the ground with Muslim people in everyday life. So all the information people got about Muslim people and about the refugees came actually from the media and from the politicians who spoke about it. So they created this fear, and it was, you could see that very much, that in countries where people are normally quite relaxed about Muslim people and have rather a positive imagination of them, because in some way they all have very, very small uh, Muslim native populations who have been living there for hundreds of years, suddenly there was a big rise of Islamophobia in these countries. So you could really see that move in the year 2015. Uh, what, what what do you have any prescriptions for what Europe should do to fight Islamophobia? If uh, Muslims want to organize and do things that uh, that change the tide a little bit, uh, do you have any suggestions? I do have some suggestions, and I think it's very uh, helpful also to look at the United States of America. Maybe let's say the pre-Donald Trump era um, of the election campaigns. Because what, what we see in, uh, in the United States is people um, do not deny that they are a multicultural society. I mean, it's clear why this is the case, because historically everybody except of the native Indians has, uh, have been uh, um, migrants. Uh, but still, in Europe, where you may see societies where you have 20 30 percent of the people who have immigrated to this country, Still, people are denying that they are living in a multicultural society. Still, the political elite speaks about 
French identity, German identity, in a very narrow and racist manner. So what we really need is much more brave politicians who just speak out the facts and who are not in a, in a, a living in a bubble where they are only speaking about their own elites, who are white and who are German and who are white and French, white, etc., but rather who speak, um, let's say, just the truth on the ground. So also in terms of the racism, I think one of the big challenges in, in most of the European countries where you have more than two political parties um, um, who are working on the ground, um, you actually um, have, let's say, a third or a fourth party, and one of them is a far-right political party, which ex extensively makes use of Islamophobia in their election campaigns. So the reaction of most of the European political parties on the side of the Social Democrats is that they are fearing to lose their votes from the laborers to these political far-right parties. And you see that with the mid-centrist uh, centrist, uh, uh, right political parties, what we call the Christian Democratic parties, they are fearing that they lose their votes to the far-right due to their own understanding of narrow understanding of national identity, which is very similar in some ways to the extreme far right. So what we see is an atmosphere of fear, an atmosphere of fear on the side of the elites that they lose their votes to the uh, growing number of far right political leaders. And that's what, what has come out of this is that they are actually not challenging the far-right discourse, but rather they are coping it. And by coping it, they are just actually re-strengthening uh, this kind of Islamophobic far-right discourse. So what we really need here is much more brave politicians who speak out against this kind of racist discourse in the public. Dr. Farid Hafez is a political science researcher at the University of Salzburg in Austria. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about burkinis and Islamophobia. He's co-editor of the European Islamophobia Report. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milos Stalik, and he'll talk with Travis Knight. He's an animator and has a new film about samurais. It's Kubo and the Two Strings. That's coming up after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Stelic speaking with director Travis Knight, whose most recent film is Kubo and the Two Strings. He's also CEO and president of Leica Studios, one of the few independent animation studios anywhere in the world. And Kubo, which is the first film that you directed, is in some ways a very Japanese story. Yeah, it's heavily influenced by Japanese mythology and folktales. You know, when I was around eight years old, I tagged along with my dad on one of his business trips to Japan. And I grew up in Portland, Oregon, which is where our studio is based. And you know, from the moment I set foot in Japan, it felt like I'd been transported to another world. It was 
just so beautiful and breathtaking, almost otherworldly. And it was the beginning of a, of a lifelong love affair that I've had with this great and beautiful culture. And so this was an opportunity for us telling this story, which is, you know, it's a big epic fantasy. It's evocative of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and, the, you know, the great films of Harryhausen and Akira Kurosawa. And this film offered us an opportunity to paint in those same colors to aspire to that pantheon of epic fantasy. And it was really rewarding to get that on screen. So how does this appeal or relate to American audiences when we not know very much about Japanese culture? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it presupposes any understanding or knowledge of Japanese folktales or mythology. In fact, you know, our crew, it's an international crew. Our crew in Portland, they come from all over the world. And so the film really is an infusion of global mythology and, and culture. Uh, you know, fundamentally, it's a film that is about family. You know, it's a big action-adventure fantasy in the vein of Star Wars, which is actually the first movie that I remember seeing in the theater when I was a kid. And it left a lifelong impact on me. And so this is kind of a film in, in that same vein. It's meant to evoke those kind of feelings. And, and so I don't know that anyone needs to be necessarily aware of the inspirations, but it's just something that we don't typically see on the big screen. And I think there's something about the spare poetry of the Japanese classic art aesthetic that's really beautiful and really moving. And when you see that on the screen, it just really pops. So the themes are like family mm -hmm. is very important in this yeah. film. And this boy finding his ancestry. Yeah, you know, he's a boy who is the son of a goddess and the greatest samurai the land has ever known. But he has a mysterious past, and when he summons an evil spirit from that past, it rains down with destruction, he's forced to go on the run. It becomes kind of this big epic quest story. And along the way, he's trying to, to save himself and to reunite his family. And along the way, he meets this odd assortment of allies, including Monkey, which is this savage, sword-wielding snow monkey voiced by Charlize Theron, and Beetle, a big, brawny, befuddled man-bug who may or may not be a samurai, and he's voiced by Matthew McConaughey. And together they face off against near-impossible odds, gods and monsters, as Kubo struggles to fulfill his destiny. So where did the story come from? The original idea came from our brilliant character designer, Shannon Tyndall. Uh, you know, we'd worked together 10 years ago on Coraline. He was one of our key character designers on the film. And we'd stayed in touch over the years. And he called me at one point and said that he had, a, you know, some ideas he wanted to pitch to me. And so I flew down to L.A. I met with him in a, in a Scottish restaurant, of all places, a, a dimly lit, tartan-walled, covered uh, Scottish restaurant. And over a dinner of Yorkshire pudding and shepherd's pie, uh, you know, he pitched these three story ideas. One of them in particular really stuck to my ribs, even more than the haggis. And that was the story that ultimately became Kubo and the Two Strings. So the power of magic is very important in the yeah. film, the power of music. Power of magic, power of music, power of storytelling. Uh, you know, fundamentally, Kubo, you know, he has this shamisen. It's kind of like a banjo. It's like a Japanese banjo. It's a three-stringed instrument, a folk instrument. And he's got some magic coursing through his veins. So when he plays the shamisen, he's actually able to create these origami figures that, that spring to life, which comes in handy later in the movie. It's kind of focusing in on that magical time of childhood when we begin that transition from being kids to adults and the things that we gain and the things that we leave behind along the way. You know, Kubo becomes something of a proxy for the filmmakers in a way, just because he is an artist, he's a musician. He's a storyteller. And it's about family, but it's also about the power of art, the power of stories, and how that can be meaningful in our lives. But that family is broken, essentially, because the father is so, so it's not a perfect family, no. even though there's a great deal of love in the family. There's a great deal of love, and it is a joyous film. And, you know, it's about this connection with this boy that he has with his mother, who's the center of his world. But yeah, his father passed years and years ago, and he has a desperate longing to connect with the memory of his dad as well. 
One of the things that I thought was interesting is is that Kudo, even though he's a, uh, a child, is really treated as an adult. I mean, very self-functioning, not at all cutesy, which is, mm-hmm. I think, in some ways a danger point in animation and character design. Yeah, I mean, I think we try to treat him like a real kid. You know, he's about 12, 13 years old. And when we started making this movie, Kubo was the same age as my oldest son. So, you know, being around kids and, you know, obviously being a kid myself, knowing the degree of sophistication and intelligence and bravery and courage that kids can have at that age, we wanted to make sure that he was a real kid and that he had all those qualities. He's still a kid. He's still vulnerable. He still has to go through this big, incredible uh, hero's journey. You know, one of the things that I pride what we do at Leica on is that we treat kids sensitively with intelligence and we don't pander to them. And I think this film shows that. It's a it's a really beautiful story about this boy, and he's like a real kid. And he was voiced, you know, beautifully by Art Parkinson from Game of Thrones. He springs to life because, you know, he feels like a, like a real boy, a real natural boy. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Stalik speaking with director Travis Knight, whose most recent film is Kubo and the Two Strings. On one level, the film functions, which I think is the best way that a film for families or children can function, which is two levels, because you have a great deal of humor that only adults will pick up on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we try to make films for the entire family, so we don't want to make cutesy little things that are just for the toddlers and have the parents going out of their skull as they're forced to endure this this marathon of, uh, of sensory overload. We really try to make films for the entire family, and so there are layers of sophistication to the film. I think the kids will, will love the action, the spectacle, and the fun, and for the parents and for the older members of the audience, there is deeper things that we explore. There's degrees of sophistication, which I think they will appreciate. So how important was cultural authenticity to you in creating this film. I mean, you have a lot of Japanese elements, mm-hmm. which I presume you studied and oh, tried yes. to make with it. No, it's incredibly important. I mean, it is a period fantasy, so that's first and foremost. But at the same time, you want to make sure that your fairy tale has one foot in reality. And so for the first you know, two to three years, we're developing the story, the world, the characters. We're coming up with the big ideas, the themes. We're trying to figure out what parts of our own life you can weave into it for, for meaning and for resonance. And while we're doing that, we want to make sure that we set this in a real place. And so we do tons and tons of research. We, you know, we go to museums. We travel to Japan. We brought in cultural consultants if it's outside of our own experience. And so, uh, you know, the film is absolutely a love letter to Japan and its culture. And Kubo's town is a composite of towns from Heian period Japan, you know, going back a thousand years ago. When they go on this journey, they pass these incredible monuments, these statues that, and that was a nod to the seven great temples of Nara Japan. And so the whole film is infused with an admiration and appreciation for the culture of Japan. It is a fantasy, and so there's obviously fantastic elements. You know, there's giant monsters and things from myth. But it was really important to us that we got the details right so that it actually felt like a real place. How much were you influenced by Japanese anime, this whole look of it? To a degree, I think that our visual inspirations go back further and deeper. It was largely, the visual aesthetic of the film was largely kindled by classic forms of Japanese art. So uh, no theater and ink wash paintings, origami, late Edo period doll making. And the biggest one was ukiyo-e, which literally means pictures of the floating world. And probably the most well-known form of ukiyo-e is the classic Japanese woodblock print, like uh, Hokusai's Great Wave off Kanagawa. In fact, we make a nod to that early on in the film, that beautiful painting. You know, there's something about those great woodblock prints where they had to simplify nature and just with bold compositions and really graphic shapes and incredibly rich colors. 
And that was the visual aesthetic that we drew from the film, uh, coming from classic Japanese art. In, in terms of film influences, probably the biggest one, the one that loomed largest over this entire film was Akira Kurosawa, uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, I think the birthplace of the modern cinematic epic really was in Japan. I think that's entirely due to Akira Kurosawa, who Steven Spielberg calls a pictorial Shakespeare, which I think is is just about a perfect summation of, of who he is. And well, he liked Shakespeare. He did indeed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Many of his films were influenced by Shakespeare. That's exactly right. And so, yeah, I think you'll see that influence over the movie as well. So how do you make a film that is rooted in Japan, a different culture, appeal to a broad American audience? You know, fundamentally, it's a universal story. It's a story, you know, about family, and it's a story about love and compassion and forgiveness. So that operates on kind of a thematic level. I think that's something that everybody can appreciate and understand. And on another level, it's just a big, fun action adventure, which is something that people get as well. Because it's set in a place that we don't typically see represented on the big screen, I think that does make it a little bit unusual. But it's also an opportunity for audiences to see something they don't typically see and be exposed to different kinds of art that they don't typically see. And I think it's stunning. It's beautiful. Uh, I think back to the films that I loved when I was a kid and, and, you know, sometimes when a film was set in a place or was something that was outside of my own experience that inspired me, I would go and I'd, I'd find out about it. And that was really kind of what was at the core of this movie. It began with an exposure to a culture that's completely foreign from my own, completely different from my own. And yet it's been a huge and a vital influence over my life for over 30 years. And so I think that audiences will appreciate the beauty and the spectacle of it, but fundamentally it's a universal story about family. And part of that is the transformation, right? Yeah. I mean, because Absolutely. that's the essence that the hero has to be transformed. It is. It's a maturation metaphor on one level. And, you know, what is maturation other than transformation or metamorphosis going from one stage to the next? Why 3D? It's how we make movies. Uh, you know, we started on, uh, on, on Coraline, which is the first film that right. we did. We started that 10 years ago. And at the time... Because of what the story was, we were looking for that Wizard of Oz moment, you know, when Dorothy goes from the sepia-toned uh, Kansas to the technicolor richness of Oz. And looking for something in our modern era that could evoke that same feeling, there wasn't anything that, that was that different and that compelling. But this was when stereoscopic photography was just starting to emerge as a filmmaking tool in the early 2000s. And so we saw that we could use it as a way to get the audience in the emotional space of the character, that our world, real world was kind of flattened and compressed, where you feel like we were constricted. And then once Coraline goes into the other world, you know, it's bigger, it's richer, it's deeper, it's got more freedom, more oxygen. But it's hard to make it work. It is hard to make it work. And I think that most filmmakers do not see it as necessarily a storytelling tool. They see it as a gimmick. But, you know, we don't use it to kind of throw things in the face of the audience. We actually use it to immerse the audience. You know, one of the things you can do in film is, you know, with color and lens choice and sound, you can, you know, bring the audience in and you can enhance the emotional experience. And I think used in the best way, 3D can do that. And that's the way we try to use it in this film. So you were very happy running the studio. Why suddenly direct? Well, you know, I've been an artist my whole life. I've been an animator for 20 years professionally. Uh, and that's how you started out before the studio? You were interested in animation? That was yeah. your first love? Yeah, absolutely. I've loved animation since I was a kid. I don't think that makes me unusual. And, but why, I think, and why? I don't know. I mean, I've always been a, an artistic and creative guy, you know, going back to when I was a kid. And, you know, I spent a lot of time alone when I was a boy. Um, and so I spent a lot of time creating, writing stories, drawing, making music. And I just loved creating things. And so that's been something that I've done my entire life. 
So I've been an animator for 20 years, and in that time, I've been a stop-motion, a CG animator. I've developed films. I've produced films. I've run a company. And it was only by virtue of having all those different experiences over that 20 years that I actually felt like I was finally ready to take a film on as the creative lead. And all those experiences led to this moment. But you could have been an animator very happy working for Pixar or something, and instead of that, you... (laughs) Never. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I love creating. I love making things with my hands. I love being an animator. But above all, I really love telling stories, telling beautiful stories that bring people together, new and original ideas, new and original stories, which is a rarity in the world that we live in now, which is, you know, dominated by franchises and brands and sequels and remakes and reboots and everything else. So the opportunity for us at Like It to tell new and original stories that analyze some different aspect of what it means to be human through this stylistic prism, it's really exciting for us to do. I just love telling stories. And this particular story really meant something to me personally. It was an opportunity for me to say something about family inspired by my own family. So I leapt at the chance, and it was by far the most creatively satisfying experience of my whole life. You said something something in your press book that your children changed your life. Absolutely. I don't think that makes me unusual as well. I mean, I think that you know, once you have kids, it's the before kids and the after kids. Before kids, you have a certain point of view on the world. And you know, once you have children, it changes your perspective. You start looking at things in a different way. And I think just because I had kids, I was working in, in media at the time, it just changed my perspective on what I wanted to do with my life and my career. And that was how Leica started, actually. You know, I saw the kinds of things that my children were exposed to. And, you know, so much of the stuff that is geared towards families is vapid and it's the sensory assault of kind of meaningless stuff. That was not my experience growing up. You know, my parents always exposed me to really beautiful, rich stories and films. And I see a dearth of that in modern entertainment geared towards children. And that was how Leica began. I wanted to make things that were meaningful, that offered a hopeful view of the world, that were uncynical on how they looked at the world, and gave kids great filmic experiences. And that was the beginning of Leica, and that's taken us all the way through to this day. What do you think animation can do that live-action films cannot? Well, they're both different forms of storytelling. I think what animation does is it stylizes the world. It simplifies it. You know, it's kind of a distilled reality. You can take an idea or a feeling and you can come up with a kind of a pure graphic distillation of ideas. And I think because it's a stylized reality, we can look at things in a different way. Essentially, it's real life wrapped in metaphor. And I think animation allows us to explore different aspects of what it means to be human in kind of a heightened and stylized way. That means, I think in its best form, that we can tackle really interesting and deep and provocative issues in a way that is safe for kids to experience. And those are the kinds of films that I loved growing up, you know, things like Snow White and Pinocchio and Sleeping Beauty, which were actually fairly sophisticated and intense stories, but they did it in such a beautiful and poetic and stylized way. It was a way that a kid could understand. And those are the kind of films that we want to make as well. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stalik. I've been speaking with director Travis Knight, whose new film, Kubo and the Two Strings, opens today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we talk about having an international good time on the weekend. And we'll talk uh, today about India Fest in Milwaukee. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. We always have suggestions from our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi. He's the co-founder of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange. Great to see you, Nari. Uh, Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Uh, what's your first suggestion here today? Uh, yes, uh, there are a couple of uh, things that are th- uh, we should mention before we move into the main uh, segment, uh, part of our segment. Uh, Iliad and Odyssey and all the Greek mythology in 99 minutes or less. This is sort of a comical take on <laughs> Greek mythology, packed in with five really talented actors, and it's happening at the Morton, Ar- Morton Arboretum, which is a great setting, this weekend. All right, that sounds wild. So the Iliad and the Odyssey, normally a pretty big, chunky, meaty event right there, and then all the other Greek mythology in 99 minutes. Exactly. They're going to be packing it up into very comical take performance kind of a thing with five really uh, good actors who are doing this, and it will be quite an educational experience for all ages, all the members of the family. Well, I hope it's at that part in the Morton Arboretum where they have those gigantic columns that are like Greek columns that are just sitting there. There's like six or ten of them, and uh, I think it would look really good there. So it will look really good. I, 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 I agree. I, I haven't gone to see where they're setting it up yet, but it will be starting tomorrow at 1 p.m. So uh, yeah, tomorrow and Sunday, both days. All right. The Morton Arboretum, your place for Greek mythology this weekend and a good time. Um, Also, we have another suggestion um, from our friends at the Chopin Theater. Yeah, the Chopin Theater always has a lot of great shows. And this is sort of a seventh uh, version of this, annual version of this. Uh, It's becoming tradition over there. It's a late show called the Fly Honey Show. And it's basically sort of a cabaret show with an element of burlesque to it, but it's very feminist-oriented. And when I went and checked it out a couple of years ago. Uh, it was really, it was the most incredibly diverse kind of a casting. It was a diverse show in every meaningful way of the uh, way you can think of ethnically and nationally in terms of uh, in terms of the kinds of programming. There's poetry recitals. There is uh, musical performances. There's actually comedy show component to it. And people are doing interesting, sensual things. There may be men, women, all kinds of sexual orientation (laughs) you can imagine is going on really, really, but a very profound humanistic and deep feminist message to it. The Fly Honey Show, it's at the Chopin Theater on Division Street, and uh, that runs actually through uh, September 3rd, so people can... This is the opening weekend for it. Have a little time to catch it. So, um, on to our third event. Uh, tell us about what's going on in Milwaukee, Nari. Uh, well, the, uh, there is an interesting uh, show. We, we're, of course, you know, we have talked about I in India here in Chicago, but the India Fest Milwaukee is actually an interesting India-oriented celebration going on, and it's happening at the Humboldt Park, uh, 300 South Howell Street in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and it starts uh, tomorrow, Saturday, August 20th, from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. And Purnima Nath is here. She is the founder of uh, India Fest Milwaukee. She's chairwoman and president of Spindle India Inc. And came down to talk to us about what's going on up in Milwaukee. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too, Gerald. Thanks a lot for doing this and coming down. Uh, how long have you guys been doing India Fest there? This is our fault. And uh, so four years of doing it. It's a relatively new event. Absolutely. And uh, uh, why isn't any? What? 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 How come not, and no one was doing this before? 
Well, I can't. Okay, I actually can't say why people haven't done it before. I can say why I have started it. Um, I've been uh, in Milwaukee for or United States for 16 years. Uh, right after college, I was here. Um, over the years, uh, what I have seen um, that a lot of people uh, do their own thing. You know, th- we are divided by North Indian, South Indian, East Indians, West Indians, and things like that. But they do have their own regional group, and some people have their own uh, religious group and things like that. So they do their um you know, celebrations and um, all sorts of things within their own pockets. Um, In Milwaukee, being an ethnic uh, city, I have seen over the years um, from summer fest to um, French fest to uh, Greek fest to um, Polish fest, there's so many festivals. So um, I wondered why there isn't any India related fest that was that was not a, there was no name then it was why there is no India related fest um uh I really can't say why people didn't think about it before I just um so you it, fired it up yourself fired it up uh, had a, another friend that we kind of started talking about why not for India why not something we do for Indians we have so many Indians over here and then started poking around in terms of how many Indians are there uh, South Asian Indians are there in Wisconsin um, interestingly there is a 2010 census says that we have about 22,000 um, Indians. And plus minus now it's 2016, so it's probably going to be more. There's a lot of companies, there's a lot of corporations out there, um, a lot of IT um, engineers and things like that. Um, so I I thought, why not start small and try to see where it goes? We actually didn't even realize that it's such a massive undertaking. It's such a great Think that it's going to be so popular in the uh, you know community, and we have done a pretty good job from that angle. That we're very focused around what we wanted to deliver, why we wanted to do it, and we communicated that from get going from beginning. We're talking about the fourth India Fest Milwaukee. It's happening in Humboldt Park in Milwaukee on Saturday from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Um, what do you see if we go? What what, what happens from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. It's a very interesting uh, concept. Most of the festival happens a couple of days uh, throughout the weekend. Um, When we initially started, we started with one-day event. We wanted to see how it goes. Uh, we are still at, we in second year, we thought maybe we should move into two days or we increase it. But as we see, um, as we uh, assess our market, as, as we see our challenges and, uh, uh, and barriers and constraints, it doesn't really make sense for us to do three days or two days at all. It's because, number one, um, we are a nonprofit 5-1-C-3 organization, and I have an entire force as a volunteer force. And um, making them work hard entire year and then stretching them three days, it's, uh, it's just impossible at this point. Number two is funding. Uh, we are the youngest and uh, probably the um, newest festival. Um, and we... Um, because of our um, nature of the business, uh, we are very um, slim funded. 
um, we don't come there and say that, okay, just give me X amount of dollars. <laughs> We're going to give it to some, um, you know, some kind of cause and things sure. like that. We go there with a very straightforward focus. Our focus is to bring our, our communities together. And while doing so, we also bring the entire America together with us. So with our, your audience our at uh, India Fest is 50-50 Indian and, uh, and other. That's right. That's exactly correct. So we are not focusing majorly just Indians. We are focusing on bringing our community. So we're focused on community where we live. So our business is different. Our dealings are different. Our operations are different. Um, What's Humboldt Park like there? Uh, <laughs> I go to Milwaukee pretty often, but I've never been to Humboldt Park. You know, if you go first time, you will just ca- uh, latch onto it. It's it's that kind of park. And first time when I went there, um, there was a two-hour um, Tuesday evening uh, concert going on, and they have a very nice um, natural amphitheater, very enclosed yeah. um, by trees, and there's a nice air play area for kids and stuff. So it doesn't look like a regular park at all. It actually looks like a um, theater. It looks like a um, place where you just go for concerts. And they have a very nicely built um, sturdy um, stage as well. So the reason it attracted me in the first year there was that I didn't have to build a stage. There was a, a built-in stage. Number two, it had natural amphitheater and that the enclosed uh, area by trees. The 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 it's nature nice. just yeah. just spoke to me, and we still stuck there for fourth year. That's great. So does that mean that the programmatically you're kind of lean more towards musical performances? Everything. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, from uh, your question was 11 to 9, what happens? We have uh, f- uh, 720 um, registrants, um, registers that we got for programs. We have 520 minutes that we have to go in, and it's a continuous program we do. Everybody gets 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because uh, we have, we from uh, in the morning before 12 o'clock, we do flag hoisting, and we Indian flag has a lot of um, uh, constraints. We cannot do it um, after 12 o'clock. So 11 to 2, we uh, 11 to 12 o'clock, we have inauguration and welcoming ceremony where we do children parade. We do national anthems. We also do flag hoisting, uh, chief guest welcoming. All those happens in the first hour. Then we start with um, our traditional music, dance, patriotic songs, and uh, of course, Bollywood. And then that goes until 9, 10 p.m. Wow, that sounds, sounds like, like fun. a regiment to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and food. And food, of course. Food, yeah. Who can deny that? Indian it's, food is great. Thank you. <laughs> Everybody loves that. Absolutely. And, of course, the regional varieties and everything and all of that. So, uh, But uh, what are the kinds of children's activities that you have? Um, throughout the day, no. children are performing, um, whether it's music, whether it's a dance act, whether it's an instrument. Uh, they are performing in, in a various different acts. We have many different um, programming types. So, for example, last year we launched Wisconsin Indian Idol. Um, that The focus was local talents. focus was that we... Um, Based on who registers, we look at the best of the best. We put them on stage, 
and um, there is a competition. We also give give out uh, awards for that. So um, there are categories from five year to nine year, nine to thirteen, thirteen to um, adult, and things like that. So it's really what we're trying to do is that we're actually. Um, trying to build the local talent and give them the confidence that they actually can perform in front of that many ed audiences. That, so throughout that uh, the day, there are programs like that, from uh, dancing to instruments and things like that. And in the morning, we do parade for children. We have fashion show for the kids. Um, and they also participate in uh, art competition that we do. Then we have rangolis, that the colorful arts that we do. Then we have rides, bouncy house, and things like that. So there's a lot of things, a um, lot of children in our in and our program. Of local uh, talent, you sing yourself too, right? I do, I do. <laughs> do you have a regular job? What, what does everybody do? I do. Uh, what does everybody do? Uh, this majority of my team members are IT. They're, they're engineers, and I'm right. myself an, um, an engineer. Very untypical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an engineer. Um, I started my career a long time ago, 16 years ago, as a software developer. Moved into management years ago, and uh, now my for last decade or so, focus has been management consulting from um, strategy, alignment, to delivery, anything. So I call myself as a fixer. I go to corporation and fix their <laughs> problems. <laughs> and now you fix Milwaukee with, uh, with India Fest. <laughs> we, we try. We try um, to do our uh, best to bring our community together. And, and, and I say it's, uh, I make fun of us ourselves. Our tagline is bringing communities together. And if you have worked in such kind of things, you know how challenging it could be. And it, it's from every angle. Well, Purnima Nath is the producer of India Fest Milwaukee. It is happening tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. at Humboldt Park in Milwaukee. Thanks a lot for coming up and telling us about uh, what's going on there and telling us about Milwaukee and Milwaukee Fest. It was a lot Thank of fun. Thank you very much. It was fun. Nariman Safavi is one of the founders of the Pasfire Arts and Cultural Exchange. He joins us on Fridays for a weekend passport. Thanks a lot, Nari, and we'll see you next weekend. Have a great weekend, everyone. Uh, we're going. To, I want to mention one other thing. Uh, there is an interesting event in the Filipino community. Uh, there's been a lot of concern about the new president, uh, President Duterte, and some of his calls uh, for uh, executing drug dealers in the Philippines, and they're they're doing it at a rapid clip. And there's going to be a human rights leader from the Philippines in Chicago this weekend. His name is Flexberto Kalang. He is with the IFI Philippine Independent Church. And he's one of the organizers of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. And he's going to be speaking in Chicago. And he's going to talk um, at a group called Kababayan for Change. They're spearheading an event. It is happening in Evanston at the Panera downtown in their conference room. And that's happening uh, tomorrow as well. And hopefully you can check that out between noon and 3 if you are concerned about what's happening in the Philippines. Tomorrow or Monday on Worldview, we'll be talking about democracy and the state of democracy around the world. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Alexandra Sal Solomon. Thanks a lot to Julian Haida and Ivan Favelovic for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Put it